Hello, New Song LA. Well, this has been another challenging week of protests and thinking through the, uh, the struggle for freedom and equality in the United States. Uh, as I've been watching these protests, one of the things that keeps coming to my mind is how much time has gone by and how long the struggle has gone on. And it's frustrating to think back over the last 40 years, let alone after the, over the last 400. And what I find is uh, I, I sometimes just feel tired and uh, hopeless. Um, I feel overwhelmed by what I see. And of course, there's a, n- a new generation that's watching the oppression that's been taking place for a long time in the United States, and some who have never seen video footage uh, this clear as George Floyd's murder. And so they are awakening to the fact that the complaints of, uh, of African-American people in this country, as well as other people of color, that their complaints are actually valid, that there really is something unjust taking place. But those who have been crying out for decades, they find themselves weary. Have you ever felt like if only the game was fair, you could win? If only the odds weren't stacked against you, you would have a chance to succeed, but you can see how the system is arrayed against you. If you've ever felt that way and you are looking for solutions, I want to encourage you today. I want to bring a word of reminder to us in our struggle for hope. Today, we're going to be looking at Exodus a bit. We'll be looking at the book of Acts a bit. But before we get going, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Father, thank you so much that you are the God who hears. And while we may grow weary in the struggle, you never sleep and you never grow tired. And so we pray, God, that you will strengthen us, revive us, remind us. But we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you back to uh, what has led up to this immediate situation that we face today, just by way of a reminder of the things that got us to this point quite recently. Um, someone jogging, someone bird watching, and someone who uh, was being investigated over a $20 bill. And in each of these cases, we find that there is a fear of African-American people that, that prompted a response that led to two deaths and one situation that was quite frightening because it could have ended that way. But as we look at people who have taken to the streets all over the world, I want to take us back even farther to a time of struggle that is actually reminiscent of our own here in the United States. We're going to the book of Acts, or rather, we're going to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to pick up at verse 8. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, we read these words. It says, Then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor and they built Pithon and Ramses as store cities of Pharaoh, 
But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They, they're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Let's pause right there. What we find in this text is a description of how systemic evil works. We find in this text a description of how systemic evil works, and we find a description of how it morphs in order to continue to achieve its ends. We have Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who is looking at people who were once considered uh, friendly and people who were originally brought into their country as guests. And in fact, uh, an ancestor of theirs had actually helped the country survive in a great time of distress, they're now looking at those people as a threat. When I look at the United States, African-American people were brought here as free labor, dragged here from uh, a distant land, and over time, the system of keeping us under control and oppressed, keeping us as free labor, but not as, as uh, equal under law, has morphed. The United States was formed with a, a compromise about the issue of slavery as the colonies in the North thought that slavery should end and the colonies in the South said, there's no way we're having a union if you're gonna bring the issue of slavery to the table. So the high and lofty language of our founding documents at no time is intended to apply to African-Americans. As the later Dred Scott decision declared by the Supreme Court very clearly, the founders did not, intend for those words of people being born equal, etc., to apply to black people in this country. The Supreme Court made it very clear that no rights of a black man were to be respected by a white man. This was a Supreme Court decision. So that's an example of how we have this high and lofty language in our founding documents, but the country was designed with oppression in mind, and it was built on that free labor for generations, and eventually, as things came to a head with the presidency of Abraham Lincoln, you had uh, a powder keg where the South at this time was, was saying, look, we've got too many people escaping to the North, and the people in the North are supposed to turn those slaves back over to us, but they're not doing that. And so a decision was made to 
uh, strengthen the law the, that required people to hand over slaves who had run away. And the law became that anyone who is found can be handed over to a slave master with minimal documentation. That led to even people who had been freed for generations in the North, people who had been freed for years, being captured and sold as slaves because there didn't need to be any proof. This led ultimately to the Civil War, the bloodiest war in American history with over 100,000 people dying on American soil. And the, the weird thing about it, which was brought out by Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural address, is that on both sides of this war, you had people praying to God for victory. Abraham Lincoln said, there's no way God can answer both of those prayers. And in fact, the North ultimately won, but only after this huge toll of bloodshed uh, um, in the country to bring the country together. Lincoln did not intend for black people in this country to be equal. In fact, he never foresaw that and made that very clear that that was not his intent. In fact, he would have tried to save the Union without freeing the slaves if he could have done that, but he was pushed to the point where he had to declare emancipation. After emancipation, another deal was made with the North when Reconstruction, uh, in the South, you had all of these African Americans that were prospering. You had them, in fact, running for office and holding public office. But a deal was struck between the parties under Rutherford B. Hayes so that uh, the, the South could basically do whatever they wanted with the blacks in the South, and that led to the rise of domestic terrorism with the Ku Klux Klan and lynchings and Jim Crow laws and sharecropping, and the laws morphed in order to continue to keep black people oppressed in this country, and each time a victory was won where a law was overcome, the law would change and morph, just as Pharaoh said, well, my first attempt is to tell the midwives to kill the boys, and when the midwives decided to disobey the law, then Pharaoh says to everyone, everyone is required to kill the boys. Well, what happens when the law is against you? We find in the text in Exodus, the first time that God is mentioned in the book of Exodus is in Exodus chapter 1 when it says, the midwives feared the Lord. The first time God is mentioned is when someone is valuing God's law above human law. These midwives, it is said, feared the Lord. And because they feared the Lord, they defied the king. They disobeyed the king. When they were interrogated about it, they made up a plausible story, but they were not going to follow that law. We had an interesting declaration this past week from our, our president saying that we must restore law and order. Let me tell you something. Those are code words. Make no mistake. If you look at the history of the United States, law and order has been used as a cover phrase for oppression of black people in particular and brown people and all people of color in general. It is code language. It is a dog whistle. And people who know their history are aware of it. And he's not getting away with it. We know exactly what he is saying, that he is going to suppress and control this uprising and make sure we can go back to business as usual. But then there was 
this couple who had a boy, and I'm flipping back now to Egypt and the book of Exodus. There was a couple who had had a boy, and they looked at their boy, and they said, the law says his life has no value. The law says that he is a threat. The law says that he's dangerous, and we say he's a beautiful child. We say that he will not be allowed to be killed. And we say that we will protect him. And so we are told in the book of Acts, chapter 7, that for seven months, the family protected this boy, or rather for, for three months, the family protected this boy. And then in a desperate attempt to save his life, his mother puts him in a reed basket and floats him down the Nile. His sister, Miriam, runs along the banks of the river watching to see what will happen to her baby brother. A woman who was an Egyptian woman, no ethnic relation to them. In fact, the daughter of the very oppressor that they feared. This woman sees this this baby boy in a basket and says he is one of the Hebrew children and she has compassion on this boy. His sister runs forward and says, "Uh, do you want me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse him? And in the greatest grand divine irony, She goes and gets Moses' mother, who then continues to nurse him until he is weaned, and then he becomes the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In this story, we see people defying the law. We see them going against what the, the state law says in order to uphold God's law. And we see the response of God to these midwives when they defy Pharaoh, that God gave them children of their own, blessing them because of their righteousness. What I find interesting is how everyone comes together to protect one child. We know the story of Moses and all that God did in and through him, but look at how the community came together. We had his mother, the midwives protecting him, his mother protecting him, his sister protecting him, Pharaoh's daughter, who was an ally, even though she was in a position of power and privilege, she protects him, defying even her father to protect this boy who was an outlaw at birth. As Moses grows up and he is educated in all the ways of the Egyptians, as he is living a life of luxury and privilege and could very well have continued to live that life and perhaps gotten even to the throne of Egypt itself, he walks out one day and looks at his own people, sees how they are suffering and how they are oppressed by their slave masters, watches a slave master beating a Hebrew servant, looks to his left and to his right, sees that no one is watching or so he believes, kills this slave master, believing that he has launched the revolution. The next day, he sees some Hebrew on Hebrew crime as two Hebrews are fighting and the one who is beating up The other one, he says, why are you fighting? You guys are brothers. And they look at him and say, who made you the boss of us? Are you going to kill me the way you killed that Egyptian? Of course, this causes Moses to become afraid that this thing has come out and he runs away with a felony warrant on him for murder. You know, when we see uprisings in the street, we are tempted to evaluate them on the basis of God's law that one should not murder, etc. And that's good. I think it's important to apply those standards. 
But if we are to apply them, then let's apply them very broadly. Let's apply them to the society itself. I remember when I was first reading this text in Exodus, and I was being taught this text by Bible teachers, pastors, as well as professors. And there would be this this struggle with what is taking place in the text. For example, uh, they would look at the midwives and say, gosh, was it really right for them to lie? Was it really right for them to lie? They would look at Moses and they would say, you know, Moses, he just wasn't following the Lord. And so he took matters into his own hands and he killed the Egyptian. Moses, you know, was a hothead and God needed to cool Moses down. But how much attention do we really pay to the craftiness of Pharaoh himself, to the injustice of the ways of Pharaoh not to mention all of those people who complied with the laws that Pharaoh had put in place. We are not given the names of the countless thousands of people who obeyed the law in defiance of God's law. And as you look at the text of scripture, here's what you don't find in this text. You never find God criticizing the midwives because they used craftiness and their wiles to get around that unjust law. You never find God actually condemning Moses for being a revolutionary and saying that he was gonna set it off by any means necessary. God, for some reason, just just doesn't see that as the main issue. Instead, 40 years go by as Moses is a fugitive. He settles in a land called Midian where he marries a woman who is distantly related to his own ancestor, Abraham. He raises a family and after four decades, he sees this spectacular sight of a burning bush and God approaches him And God speaks to him. And I want to take us there right now to Exodus chapter, Exodus chapter three, actually, where the Lord cries out to Moses and the Lord tells Moses that he intends to do something about this wickedness that is taking place. So Moses says to to God when he sees this burning bush, Uh, Moses approaches it and God begins to talk to him. And God says to Moses that uh, this, the text here that I have in front of you is actually from the book of Acts. We're not gonna look at that together. I'm gonna just recite to you what happened. So God says to Moses that uh, he has seen the oppression of his people and he has come down to deliver them. And so God introduces himself to Moses as the one who has seen the oppression of his people after Moses walks aside to see this burning bush and God is delighted that Moses does that, tells him to take off his shoes. God says, I've seen the oppression of my people. I am sending you to go and to deliver them. And Moses then has lost hope. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh in order to deliver the people? Who am I? I wanna talk to the weary warriors today. Perhaps you are someone who has dealt with injustice for a long time. Perhaps you are a student of history. And as you have looked over the years at uh, systems of injustice in the United States, you have grown tired. You have grown weary. 
perhaps even the recent, relatively recent incidents of the Watts uprising, the LA uprising, the, the killing of person after person who is unarmed. If you have seen these things and you've seen the uprisings and you realize that when the dust settles, things have not changed that much. Perhaps you are even a student of the 1960s and you look at the, the civil rights movement and then you lamented as that civil rights legislation has been systematically attacked by various administrations just within the last 25, 30 years. And perhaps as you see now this struggle of people taking to the streets, you find yourself fatigued. Well, Moses was that kind of guy. He was a guy who in his youth was filled with passion and wanted to bring about a revolution, but he was a guy who had become so discouraged that he no longer thought the revolution a possibility, and he certainly did not think of himself as an effective revolutionary. I want to confess that that's how I feel these days. I found myself kind of stunned by all of this. I found myself like a deer in the headlights, uh, watching in shock at the killing of yet another unarmed black person, thinking back on all the different settings in which African-American, unarmed African-Americans have been killed. People called to help because uh, a door is open and they, they come to the house and shoot into the house, killing the woman who is peacefully in her home. A man sitting down in his living room eating and someone mistakenly comes into his apartment and because he looks like a threat, doesn't have a conversation, but shoots him right there in his own living room and on and on and on. And frankly, I'm fatigued by it all. And while I have been communicating with people online and I've been strategizing and thinking through what do we do to seize this moment, in my heart, I'm filled with sorrow and I'm filled with fatigue. And I'm reminded of Moses. You see, God said to Moses, I'm sending you. And Moses had reason after reason why he wasn't the guy. And finally, he says, look, I don't even speak that well which I questioned very seriously. <laughs> Who was he comparing himself to? But God says, look, I'll send your brother Aaron with you. And once again, we see that what God's solution was is this is not gonna be about one person. I had somebody send me a note uh, this past week saying, where are our black leaders today? Where is the Martin Luther King today? And I think that what God is saying to us is it was always it was always a very broad community struggle. It was always a struggle of all oppressed people coming together. It was always a struggle of allies stepping in and using their privilege and power and influence to help. It was always about God leading and directing the movement, God blessing those who feared him more than they feared society, more than they feared unjust laws or or social repercussions for doing things that are not quite polite. It was always a team effort. So God sends Aaron with Moses and Miriam, his big sister, gets involved and leads as well. And in one instance, his wife actually steps in and protects his life. His father-in-law steps in to give him advice. Seventy elders of Israel help as they lead the movement, 
But most of all, God sees from heaven and he strikes terror into the heart of Pharaoh. And God moves the hearts of the Egyptian people that they begin to lavish resources upon the Hebrews so that when they get their freedom, they get it with the resources to build a new civilization. What do I hope for when I look at what's happening in America? I believe we are in a moment that the Bible refers to as a kairos. It is an opportune moment where it is not business as usual. It is not a normal everyday occurrence. Something spectacular is happening and God is shifting things, not incrementally, but shifting things dramatically. And what a kairos moment requires is for people to understand the times like the sons of Issachar and to know what the people of God must do. I want to challenge you if you are a person who is wanting the streets to go back to peace, if you are wanting things to calm down, if you are lamenting the fact that some people in the streets are vandals and some are looters and and some are using, oh my goodness, terrible language as they talk to police officers and peacekeepers, if you are a person who is wanting things to be uh, peaceful and for people to use the proper etiquette in the streets, I want to get you to shift your focus to the focus that God had in the book of Exodus. Look at the systems of oppression. Not just a bad person here or there, but systemic evil that is designed to perpetrate oppression. Pharaoh said, let us deal with them shrewdly. That means let's create policies that handle this thing for us so that we don't have to get our hands dirty. And so in America, you had systems like redlining where, where uh, certain properties just get no bank investment and therefore you have ghettos that are run down. You have systems like the GI Bill that was applied to white soldiers coming back, but not to African-American soldiers that were not able to take advantage of that financial boon that led to generations of prosperity and stored up inherited wealth. You have systems of policing in which People get arrested at disproportionate rates. People get sentenced at disproportionate rates. And now we even have a system of profiteering off of prisoners where privatized prisons gain money from the government for having their beds full. And you have government officials who own stock in those very prisons manipulating the law so that those beds are filled with black and brown people who are a source of revenue to the state. If you are a person who is wanting things to calm down, I ask you, don't pray for peace. Pray for justice. And the age-old cry that has led revolutions in the past, we are hearing screamed once again, no justice, no peace. If you think that this is somehow unchristian, you need to reread your Bible. Because the God of justice is the God that we serve. The God who sees the oppressed is the God that we serve. And the God who came in human form as Jesus Christ to deliver us was an ethnic minority in an occupied territory who was oppressed, who was beaten, who was tortured, who was arrested on false charges by corrupt government officials and tortured to death by law, under the law by people who could point to the statutes that he had so-called violated. 
And so if you're wondering where Jesus is in the midst of it, he stands with people who are oppressed all over the world. And he is behind, in fact, the revolution that will take place. Should we look at our tactics? Should we make sure that we are honoring God in the way that we do things? Absolutely. But if Christians who love the Lord don't step into that vacuum and guide that movement by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, then I would say what Mordecai said to Esther. If you think somehow that you're going to escape, then God will send a deliverer from some other place. But maybe you were put in the position that you were in for such a time as this. Christianity is not always the faith that Jesus gave us. There was a form of Christianity in the United States that defended slavery, that defended Jim Crow, that defended segregation, that has defended white supremacy. There is a form of Christianity that is anathema to God. It is a heresy. And if you think just because somebody prays a sinner's prayer or stands in a pulpit that they speak authentically for God, think again. We need to go back to the word of God and study what righteousness looks like. We need to be students of our history and see where previous generations got it wrong. Christian heroes like, like even Finney, who actually had integrated churches as an evangelist, but was staunch about segregation and about secondary status of black people. Or evangelists like George Whitfield, who was evangelizing both black and white people evangelizing slaves, but in fact fought to hold slaves himself and saw that as somehow consistent with the faith of following Jesus Christ. We need to call out when Christians are out of step with Jesus the same way Jesus called out when the religious leaders of his time were out of step with Yahweh. And today we need to seize this moment and come up with specific actions that we can take to build a more perfect union, a more just society, and one in which people can see that God sees the tears of the oppressed and that God is stepping in to bring justice that will actually lead to peace. I've heard some say, all we need to do is get people saved. Let me ask you a question. How's that working for you? You think it's just a personal thing that people automatically understand the implications of their faith when they, they think that all God came to do was to give them personal salvation, a personal way to heaven. Here's what Jesus said. This is salvation, that they may know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know Jesus and to know God, that is salvation. But let's not forget the words that God said through the prophet Jeremiah. Is this not what it means to know me, he said, when he challenged a king to make sure that he was standing up for the rights of the poor and of the oppressed? God said, is that not what it means to know me? And so, yes, salvation comes through knowing God the Father, through knowing Jesus Christ, through being filled with the Holy Spirit. But the God we are talking about is the God who insists that governments treat their people with justice and especially protect the poor, the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. This is a Kairos moment. There will be no standing on the sidelines. What side are you on? Will you stand with God who demands justice? Will you be passive and pretend you don't see what's going on? 
or that it somehow doesn't relate to your faith? Or will you actually help to bolster a corrupt system that has been oppressing people for generations? I would say this, let's get our heads together and talk about what it looks like to have just policing, to talk about what it looks like to have communities of love and trust and to rebuild what was designed in an evil way to rebuild it in a righteous way. One day the king of kings will return and he will make all things new. But he said he will also be looking for those who have been praying thy kingdom come and who have been working to demonstrate that kingdom as salt and light while waiting for his return. Let us be found among those whom he calls faithful servants, those to whom he says, well done. And in the meantime, let's hold on to hope. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that in our struggle for hope, we are reminded that while time may go by, you are not blind to our suffering. Your ears are not closed to our cries. And in fact, it is you who are raising up people to fight against injustice, to overturn evil and to make things right. My prayer today is that you will restore our hope as you restored the hope of Moses, that you will give us the strength to struggle, to struggle patiently as those who are listed in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, who struggled throughout their lives, never seeing things that they were longing for, never seeing that perfect new kingdom that you alone will bring, but working in their lifetime to make it better. May we be found among those saints, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.